Welcome to Choice Classic Radio, where we bring to you the greatest old-time radio shows. Like us on Facebook, subscribe to us on YouTube, and thank you for donating at choiceclassicradio.com. When it started, it was simple, just a lawsuit for damages. But before it was over, it was far from simple, and the damages were murder. All because of a red-headed woman, a ghostwriter with ambition... And a match that burned with a bright green flame. From the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of crime fiction, comes his most famous character as CBS presents... The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. Now, with Gerald Moore, starred as Philip Marlowe, we bring you tonight's exciting story... The Green Flame. It had been the kind of early start, late finish, crowded in between day that had made breakfast, coffee, lunch, a ham sandwich on the run, and dinner, nothing. So by the time it finally ended, it was pushing nine o'clock, and I was both a little tired and a lot hungry. All of which made the feast I could imagine spread out in front of me over an emerald green tablecloth something better than good enough to eat. Blue Point oysters on a half shell, a Caesar salad. Veal scallopini topped with mushrooms the size of silver dollars. Oh, I was ready for it. Yes. Yes, well, the oysters once again became a blue ashtray. The scallopini a notebook. A green cloth underneath all... My desk blotter. Hello, Marlowe speaking. Jody Whitmore, Marlowe. Ever hear of me? I have. I've also heard you own half a dozen screen magazines, a local radio station, and a daily published for the motion picture industry called The Hollywood Trades. Is that covered? Not quite. Today I acquired something else. A libel suit for 100000 that was just slapped against the trades by a has-been actor named Bradford Colby, which, Marlowe, is the reason I'm calling you. Oh? So drop whatever you're doing, boy, and get over here to the Whitmer Building. Whitmer Building? We're on El Centro near Gower and closed tomorrow Sunday, no addition. Figures. When the night watchman lets you in, turn left, keep walking till you get to an office number 116. You got that? Yeah, 116. But if you don't mind, Miss Whitmer, I'd like to do something. I'd like to eat first. Make a coffee and a ham sandwich at the outside and get over here fast. Coffee? Look, Miss Whitmer, I'm starving. Hello. How much do you get a day? Twenty-five in expenses. Why? I'm willing to pay a hundred and twenty-five, and you keep track of the expenses. Now, what do you say, boy? Boy says coffee and a ham sandwich will leave him stuffed. Goodbye, Miss Whitmire. Come in, Marlowe. Sit down over here, and if you smoke cigars, don't. I can't stand them. Drink? No, thanks. Marlowe, our A1 gossip columnist, Stanley McGrath, had this to say in today's edition of The Trade. Mm-hmm. The sometimes actor, Bradford Colby, won't call it quits. When refused a part by an independent producer who's short on funds, Colby offered to hawk all and come up with 20000 if the producer would change his mind. The producer wouldn't. End of quote. And beginning of noise from Colby, huh? Yes, the clamor that we can only silence by proving that McGrath, what he said, is true. Which shouldn't be impossible, because Max was a thorough man and never heard of the word rumor. Wait a minute, wait a minute. What do you mean, was a thorough man? He died of a stroke, Marlowe, at five this morning, en route to the hospital, age 61. Mm. His column, as usual, arrived here yesterday afternoon in the mail. 
He always wrote from his home, which is a junk-filled cracker box upon North Bronson. And now you're being sued by Colby for damages, huh? The late Mr. McGrath isn't around to prove what he said is true. You catch. And being very unpopular with producers myself these past 30 years, Marlowe, <laughs> I have no chance of any help from the one who actually turned Colby down for that part, whoever he is. All of which makes my job what? Precisely this. Fine, max source of information. Come in, Larry. Larry North, Marlowe. My editor and anybody's Napoleon. Larry, meet Mr. Marlowe. Uh, how do you do? How do you do? Dodie, I've just found out that old Max only Lakeman, a queer duck named Leonard Phipps, left town sometime yesterday for San Diego. May or may not be back by now. Where's Marlowe going to start? Well, I think. Figured... At old Max's place. Larry and I have already checked there, Marlowe. 8312 North Bronson. Maybe you'll grab onto something that we overlooked. Here's the key. Thanks. Mac lived alone. Don't get wrapped up in his notes. That gibberish. And remember, my lawyers are sure that we lose this case if we can't prove what Mac said was the truth. Well, yeah, but... All as soon as you get a lead, and if I'm out, Larry will be in his office next door. And, Mallow, don't waste any time. There's a lot at stake, boy. What Dodie Whitmer had labeled a cracker box turned out to be a five-room, slightly beat-down, almost square house set back some 50 carelessly landscaped feet from a high stucco wall that said the late Mr. McGrath had lived alone and liked it. And when I entered and went to his study where I turned on a desk lamp, I saw what my client had meant by junk. There were the odds and ends that a man collects in a lifetime. On his desk, a tarnished loving cup for excellence in reporting, dated 1927. Beyond that, on the mantel, an autographed picture of Teddy Roseville, and next to it, a paperweight from Niagara Falls. And then... And then an item I hadn't expected... In the shadowed corner of the room, there was somebody else. A tall, gaunt somebody else wearing horn-rimmed glasses and papers sticking out of every pocket. He was slowly, an inch at a time, backing off from the edge of the circle of light in which I stood. I took one casual step toward the desk, and then... Get your hands off me. Why? Take a start running, Mr. Leonard Phipps. How do you know my name? I'm psychic. I also know you just got back from San Diego. What I don't know is what you're doing here. Now, come on. Talk. Fast. Don't leave me alone. I'll talk. I've got nothing to hide from the right party. Who are you? Philip Marlowe, private detective, was working for Dodie Whitmer, a lady impatient to know which producer McGrath was talking about in that article on Colby this morning. Now, do I qualify? Uh, yes, yes, yes. Of course, we're... Both after the same piece of information, Mr. Marlowe. Oh? I want to find that answer, too, and then whisper it into Dodie's ear. Just to save her a hundred thousand bucks? No. Just to get a chance to fill McGrath's shoes. And don't laugh, because I've been ghosting that column for the past month now. Didn't McGrath write this morning's column himself? No, he didn't. I did. But the piece on Colby was not mine. McGrath must have added that himself, the fool. Well, you don't sound like you're happy in your work, Phipps. I wasn't. Mac was a tyrant. I put up with him because he promised sooner or later to let Dodie Whitmar know that I was doing his work. Don't be too bitter, Fitz. I couldn't have known exactly when he was going to die. Well, what if he But to get die? back to the subject, have you any idea where we can get a hold of something real to go on? Yes. Yes, I do. Uh, out there in the living room. Oh. Follow me, Marlowe. If you can, in the dark. Come back here. I'll see. <laughs> By the time I got to my feet, Phipps was gone. I found another lamp in the dark, turned it on, and started for the telephone. But then I stopped. In the center of the floor, where it must have fallen when the leg man made his wild break, was a wrinkled piece of paper. When I picked it up and turned it over, I was suddenly glad that Mr. Phipps had gotten away because... 
In his hurry to leave, he had dropped his checkoff list for Operation Bradford Colby. There were a half a dozen producers crossed off above the notation Max Place, but below that, and not yet discounted, was a name I'd never heard before. Sherry Sheldon. At that, I called Dodie Whitmer, gave her a quick rundown on what had happened with Phipps, and then tossed the name Sherry Sheldon in. She talked it over with Larry North before she answered. But when she did, I knew that finally we were all getting someplace. Marlo, this is good. Larry tells me that Sherry Sheldon is the ex-Mrs. Bradford Colby. Oh? And better than that, a redhead with temperament to match. That kind will talk. Mm-hmm. Any idea where this item lives? Yes, a bungalow on Sheremoya. 5,800. 5,800, huh? Larry says it's a quiet, dead-end street, but not to let that throw you. Because from what he's heard about the lady herself, she's very much alive. So play it smart, boy. You're probably in the big time now. Good luck. Only a furlong plus the bungalow on Sheremoya, so when I pulled up and parked away from number 5,800, I was still wondering exactly what play it smart, boy, meant. When the lady in question was known far and wide as a shock of red hair capping so much dynamite. But a minute later, as I walked toward the house, I labeled that thought introspection, dismissed it, and concentrated instead on an acre of tweed jacket that was unfolding out of a long, honey-colored sedan parked a little ahead of me. When it straightened up to something over six and a half feet, slammed his car door shut and stomped inch-thick, sold brogans off in a king-sized hut, I knew that this was an angry man. And in the next second... I knew that it and the thespian Bradford Colby were one and the same. When Colby got to Sherry's doorbell and jabbed at it impatiently for attention, I ducked below a hedge nearby. When the door opened and then slammed shut again, I left the hedge in favor of an on-the-biased palm tree that bowed toward Milady's chamber where I could both see and hear what had to be an exciting reunion. You said that you knew something that couldn't fail to intrigue me on this of all days. So now that I'm here, start intriguing Sherry, darling. All right. How's this for a starter? I want, to the penny, exactly one half of the money you're going to get from Dodie Whitmark. Oh, Sherry, how droll. <laughs> now, why in the name of the great American dollar do you think I'd give you so much as a sly glance at that delightful little fund? For two reasons. The first, I deserve it for putting up with both you and your abominable conceit for exactly <laughs> one year. Oh, still droll, darling. <laughs> Go on, keep laughing, Mr. Colby. Keep laughing while I light my cigarette with one of these matches, these cute ones that burn with a green flame. Where did you get those? <laughs> In a little no known lodge out beyond Malibu called the green flame. Don't you remember, darling, I, I ran into you there one day last week when you were having lunch with a mysterious stranger whom you tried to keep me from seeing. You nasty little sneak, Sherry. When you were so engrossed in keeping yourself between me and your guest that, that you left this souvenir book of matches at the bar after you graciously lit my cigarette for me. And what of it? They give those matches out by the thousands. That they do, but Brad, dear, they all don't have numbers penciled on the inside. Numbers? Ah, <laughs> What numbers are you talking about? <laughs> now, who's being drawn? What are you getting at, Sherry? This. I had a call a minute before I got in touch with you from a delightful gentleman who's very interested in what I'm getting at. So here, take your stupid book of matches and get out. No. I, I don't need them anymore. No, wait, Sherry, not please. Fred, I am going to have exactly one half of that easy money that's coming your way. And after the gentleman I mentioned and I get together... I may want more. So don't say anything you'll be sorry for later on. Oh, Just Sherry. get out now. And don't come back until I send for you. 
dear Brad. It was the better part of a minute before Colby the actor quit running the gamut of theatrical expressions indexed under hate, and Colby the man stopped biting down hard on his lower lip. Then, without another word, he slammed out of his apartment, ran to his car, and started off. I waited long enough for steam in the room to condense, and then I walked to the front door and rang the bell delicately, the way I imagined a delightful gentleman like Mr. Leonard Phipps might. Yes? Can I help you? I think so, Miss Sheldon. It's only a matter of a simple question. Did you give that Brad Colby story to McGrath yesterday? Wait a minute. Who are you? Why, Leonard Phipps, of course. I talked to you on the phone, remember? Oh. Oh, yes. It was only half an hour ago, Mr. Phipps, and and yet in those 30 minutes, it's surprising how your voice has gone from tenor right down to bass. Good night. Not so fast, baby. It's out of my shoe shine. All right. Come in. I'll tell you what you want to know. I did give that story to McGrath. I I did it for revenge. I hate Colby. Uh Uh-huh. And when your revenge boomeranged and the ex came out 100,000 ahead of you, you decided to cut back in, is that it? Yeah, that... Wait a minute. You've been listening. How else would you know all this about Brad and me? Same way I know you're a liar about giving McGrath that story. You're in, honey, is strictly something different like a book of matches. That burn with a green flame, an accidental meeting at the lodge of the same name. Let's take it from there. Huh? Yes, why don't you? Right outside, where both you and it belong. Good night, mister. Marlow, Marlow, Philip Marlow, Sherry. But tell me, why the hurry? Anxious to party your nose before Mr. Phipps arrives? Frankly, Philip... I'm anxious to do just about anything that doesn't involve talking to... What? What are you doing? Somebody's hit. Come on. He's over there near the curb. The car didn't stop, Marlowe. No, and that scream sounded pretty... Pretty bad. Oh. Oh, he's... Dead, isn't he, Marlowe? Yeah. That could mean only one thing to you, baby. To me? Why, who... Who is it? Your late date, Sherry. One Mr. Leonard Phipps. In just a moment, the second act of The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. But first, on the special program, One Great Hour, later tonight on CBS, President Harry S. Truman will be joined by Gregory Peck, Isla Lupino, and Quentin Reynolds to tell the story of what American religious groups are doing to bring relief to the world's war-stricken people. Be sure to hear One Great Hour tonight at 10 o'clock Eastern Standard Time over most of these same CBS network stations. Now, with our star, Gerald Moore, we return to the second act of Philip Marlowe and tonight's story, The Green Flame. Head sophisticated knives tear down at what seconds ago had been Leonard Phipps. The sound of the powerful car that had slammed the life out of him whirred into silence far down the street. All that was left of Stanley McGrath's overambitious leg man was a twisted, broken scarecrow, sprawled over the curb and half up on the sidewalk. It wasn't pretty. And the sight of it cracked Sherry's self assurance like a rock through a window pane. When she stopped pressing the knuckles of one hand against her mouth and looked at me, she was scared. Clear through. Marla, this horrible thing, it was an accident, wasn't it? Oh, sure, sure. About as accidental as if they'd use a sledgehammer on him. Oh, Oh, yes. Only wish it was an accident because you're next in line and you know it. 
Remember, he was on his way to see you when this happened to him. I don't know what you mean. I mean, it's a high-priced game, baby, and they're playing for keeps. So you better level with me and fast. What's so important about those green matches? I don't know. You're a liar. You're going to wind up looking like Phipps here before the sun comes up. No, no, no. And tell me the truth, you little fool. Come on. I I swear. Phipps called me because he he thought I might have given McGrath that story on Brad, but I didn't. And why was Phipps still interested? Why do he want to talk to you? Because I I told him I'd seen Brad with someone at the Green Flame last week, and and that Brad was very upset when he found me there. All right, who is he with? I don't know. That's not the impression you gave your ex-husband, beautiful? I was swinging in the dark, Marlowe. Five people left the green flame at the same time. I, I, I couldn't tell which one had been with Brad, but I'd know them if I saw them again. And Phipps thought that together we could figure out who it was. Go on. What about the numbers in that book of green matches? What were they? Eight, one, one. Eight, eleven? Yes. What does that fit? A hotel room? Oh, I don't know that is. You mean it was just another swing in the dark? Yes, but it connected, Marlowe. It scared him when I mentioned it, so it must be important. Yeah? Take another look at Phipps, baby. See how important it is. Now try again real hard. Remember what 811 means. Marlowe, I just don't know. Please believe me. Maybe you're just thick. Maybe you got too much nerve, but I'll tell you one thing, Sherry. I wouldn't be in your spot for ten times a hundred grand because I don't think you're going to live until morning. Oh, I didn't think that Brad would go this far. What, what I've told you is the truth. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Shut up. Somebody's coming. It might be Bradford. Now, you get out of here. Well, I, I don't have my car. Take mine, that coupe. Here are the keys. Go down to the office of the Hollywood Trades. He won't show his face around there. Find Larry North or Dodie. Well, all right, but what about Go you? Go on. Will you beat it? I stepped into the shadows of the trees that bordered the walk and waited. I heard Sherry slam the door on my car and burn five bucks worth of rubber off my new fist tires getting away. A second later, the visitor I was expecting showed up, but it wasn't Brad Colby. It was Larry North. He ran three bustling steps out into the street and watched my coupe scoot out of sight. And he spotted the corpse. His mouth fell open and he tiptoed slowly toward it like he was afraid he might wake it up. When I moved out into the light, he saw me and turned. That's him, Marlowe! Do you know about this? Who is it? It's Leonard Phipps. Phipps? A grass leg man? Yeah. Driver didn't so much as look back. What a stinking break. Tips in a hit-and-run accident at a time like this. Look, you jump to your conclusions, North, and I'll jump to mine. Eh? What do you mean? Phipps knew something fishy about that item in McGrath's column. And Sherry Sheldon knew something fishy about Colby. So from where I stand, Colby couldn't afford to let them get together. No accidents? That's a daring observation, Marlowe. For a hundred thousand bucks, I know plenty of guys who do a thing like this every day in the week. You can buy a lot of distance with that kind of money. Hey, you're right, of course. What exactly does the Sheldon girl know? Did you find out? Only partly. Bradford's mixed up with someone else on this deal. Sherry doesn't know who, but if we can get the other tie-in, she'll be able to identify that person on sight. Uh, well, did she... Well, did she have, have anything else? Number 811 in the book of matches mean anything? 811? Hey, no. Hey, 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 come on, North. Quit uh, staring at him. You're making yourself sick. Let's get out of here. Yes, yes, all right. But I, I guess I'd better. Bradford Colby must be out of his mind. Maybe. I'll let you know. I'm going to drop in on him now before the cops do and check my theory over with him. Where does he live? Here on Wilcox, a villa in the Midcliff Gardens. Marlowe, I'm going in and talk to Sherry. Maybe I can find out who Colby's working with. Uh, she's not here. I sent her down to the paper in my car to stay with you or Dodie until things yes, cool off. Yes, but Dodie isn't there. She went out for some reason right after you called. There's no one there now but the night watchman. Oh, great. <clears throat> now, look. Drop me off at Colby's place, and you get down there and find Sherry. She's worth a hundred thousand bucks to Dodie Whitmer, but only if she lives. Now, let's go. 
the natty little Napoleon in the elevator scurried off to fetch his car, I ran inside. Put a fast call through to the police and submitted the shortest report on record of a hit-and-run death. By the time I got back, North was waiting at the curb with the door open. I piled in beside him, and ten minutes later, we glided to a stealthy stop on Wilcox, the ivy-covered archway over the Midcliff Garden gate. Neat slices of amber light poured through a big Venetian blind on the window of a villa at the rear of the court. Miss North identified as Colby's. And the same breath reminded me that the actor was a strapping 6'6 and a desperate man. He urged me to be careful, and I urged him to hurry, and as he left, I walked toward the big window and saw Bradford inside, slumped deep in the lap of a suede easy chair, doing a solo with a bottle of Paul Masson champagne, and looking about as desperate as a sleepy St. Bernard. I walked around to the front door, decided to try the shock treatment to blast him out of his blasé attitude. Yes, what do you want? Get inside. Go on, move. Take your hands off me. You might have gotten away with that fucked up suit for damages, Colby, but you're not going to get away with murder. You killed Leonard Phipps, didn't you? What are you raving about? Who's Leonard Phipps and who are you? Name's Marlowe, and I'll tell you something, Colby. The only reason I'm not busy knocking your head off at this minute is because I want to hear the whole story right from the top. Now, first, who wrote that item in McGrath's column for you? Are you mad? McGrath wrote it himself, the venomous little creature. He and Donnie Whitmer used that to damage my reputation, and now they're going to pay for it. Oh, stop it. You knocked your reputation into a cock's head every time you step in front of a camera. Well, Your damage suits are phony, and you know it. Now, where's that book of matches with the famous 811 inside? 811? Mm-hmm. Oh. Oh, yes. Those that burn with a green flame. Yes, uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, You've been yeah, talking yeah. with my imaginative ex-wife, I see. She's burning with quite a green flame herself, isn't she? How that woman hates to see me get a... Never hit. mind. Where is it? If you'll allow me, Marlowe, I'll just answer this. Mm. Bradford Colby speaking. Mm. I see. Yes, I heard. That's right. Well, I'll do my best, darling. At least ten. Uh, goodbye, Helen. Just an old friend, Marlowe. You can let your eyebrow down again. Helen, huh? You know, you always were a lousy actor. I'm getting a little sick of you, Colby. And I've got a hunch I'm due for quite a stall, so start talking, huh? Where's that book of matches? Easy, Marlowe. Take it easy. Here it is. Come on, let's see it. Of course. Here, take a good look. Oh! <clears throat> what a character. Up to your chin in trouble and you make way. Lousy snoot. Oh! That does it. Tough guy. You're not leaving, Marlow. You're staying right here. And just to make sure... Oh, you know it, Colby. You sucker. Should have loosened your corset. I waded through the chunks of glazed ceramics that Colby had smashed on my head and worked hard to hold back the, the wave of darkness that kept rising up under me until I made it to the kitchen. I splashed a few quarts of cold water on my face. Then I went back. Colby was still holding down the hooked rug he landed on, and the book of matches that had started the argument was on the floor beside him. I picked it up and opened it. The number was there, inside, written in blue wax pencil. But I thought I'd made a mistake. Until I realized that maybe Sherry Sheldon had made the mistake. When that idea hit me, it brought another one along, and I remembered that Colby had received orders by phone to delay me. Oh, my. And I knew I'd better hang on to my head and move, but fast. I rolled him over and found the keys to his car. I was halfway out the door when he came to. Uh, stop. Come back. You can't leave here. It's my exit, not yours, Hambone. Good night. <laughs> <laughs> 
five minutes to get from Wilcox to El Centro and Colby's long, honey-colored sedan. And on a hunch, I drove down the alley to the back door of the Whitmer building. The hunch paid off because I had stopped and turned on the parking lights when the door opened and I saw exactly what I'd expected. The watchman was on the floor out cold and the little Napoleon in elevated shoes was staging a big exodus with his arms full of a very limp redhead named Sherry Sheldon. As soon as he saw the honey-colored car, he started talking. Brad! Brad, you idiot! I told you to stay home! To do it! No, she's only unconscious. There wasn't time. We'll have to finish it someplace else. Put her in the back seat. All right. Here. Now, let's get out. Move! Don't move, little man. I'm too tired for any more trouble. I'll shoot first. So you're the boy on the inside with all the brains, huh? You cooked this whole thing up with Colby. He gets libel and sues Dodie Widmer for damages, and then you two split the settlement between you. Correct me if I'm wrong, North. You got your chance when McGrath died after turning in his copy. All you had to do was write that one libelous item included in McGrath's column, and nobody could ever explain where the story had come from. That stupid fool, Bradford. I could never trust him to do anything right. Is that why you killed Phipps? Yes. And if Brad Colby had held on to you for another five minutes, I would have had time to get out of here. Yes. And so would I. Sherry, are you all right? No, not yet. Hey, hey, oh. Where he and Brad are going, Marlowe, I'd never get another chance to even the score. Oh, baby. <gasps> you handle a spiked heel like Babe Ruth handled a bat. <laughs> he's out. Yeah, but Phil, you should see where what he hit me with. Oh, brother. <laughs> Come on, beautiful. It's time to turn out the lights, get in touch with Dodie, and call the law. Let's go. Hey, thank you, Mr. Good night. Good night. <laughs> well, I'm glad those cops and the cigars are gone. Here, kids, help yourselves. You both look like you need it. This you can say again. How oh, I need it. <laughs> Marlo, you could have slid me through the hole in the lifesaver when you said my own editor, Larry Knopf, was it. Yeah, it gave me a joke, too, Dodie. Yeah, and me. <laughs> the hard way. But, Phil, I am sorry about that mistake I made. I could have saved us some trouble. What mistake is this? Well, you see, honey, we knew that whoever was working with Colby had written down a number for him in a book of matches. Sherry here thought it was 811. But when I saw it, it was upside down from that, so it came out 118. 118? Mm-hmm. Why, that's Larry's office number and phone extension. Check. Yours is 116, and his was right next door, I remembered. So, 118 was it. That, coupled with the fact that it was written in blue pencil, which is standard equipment for all editors, gave me the tip. Honest now, Phil. Hmm? Did you figure that out, or was it luck? Uh, well, it's a trade secret. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you know something? I missed dinner tonight. You know I'm starving? Well, uh, I know a wonderful place. Uh-huh. They have uh, matches like this, uh-huh. see? It burns with a green flame. Will you join us, Dodie? Yes, yes, we uh, would love to have you. You'd rather have whooping calls. <laughs> Go on, you. Get out of here and good night. Good night, Dodie. Oh, and it will be from here on in. I guarantee it. Oh, 
wonderful supper was waiting for us at the Green Flame restaurant. It was all arranged by a call from Dodie. And it waited until it got cold because we didn't show up to eat it. There was something about the moonlight glinting on the ocean. And a certain stillness in the morning air that made food seem somehow unimportant. So, when I finally dropped Sherry off at her place on Sherimoya, went home to my apartment on Franklin, it was either very late or very early, depending on the viewpoint. There was just one lonely sardine and a cold baked potato in the refrigerator. So I ate. Then I sat down on my bed to light my last cigarette. But I wasn't disappointed when the match flared into an ordinary yellow flame. Happy Marlow. The Adventures of Philip Marlowe, created by Raymond Chandler, star Gerald Moore, and are produced and directed by Norman MacDonald. Script is by Mel Dinelli, Robert Mitchell, and Gene Levitt. Featured in the cast were Faye Baker, Larry Dabkin, Myra Marsh, Howard McNear, and Parley Bear. The special music is by Richard Orant. Be sure and be with us again next week when Philip Marlowe says... It was a grim joke that started when six heirs came to an ugly house on a rain-swept island to hear a madman's will. But the joke soon turned to murder. And in the end, it was hard to tell who had the last laugh. Tomorrow night, Helen Hayes stars in the famous comedy The Farmer Takes a Wife on CBS's Electric Theater. And Eve Arden stars as America's favorite schoolmistress, Our Miss Brooks. You'll delight in the expert comedy of these two great feminine stars when the Electric Theater and our Miss Brooks come your way tomorrow night over most of these same CBS network stations. This is Roy Rowan speaking. Now stay tuned for Gangbusters, which follows immediately over most of these same stations. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System.